Morrison's vaccine failure locks down millions. Morrison handed out 330 million in car park pork the day before calling an election. Medicare cuts to start tomorrow and the intergenerational report paints a bleak future. And the good news is that alleyway farming might save the rainforest. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am Ben Davison and joining me from deep in the heart of Gladys's locked down Sydney is the always fabulous and COVID safe Van Batham. How are you, Van? Well, having so many fun lockdown adventures. For example, the recording the podcast and then the internet crashing adventure. That was fun, wasn't it? Yes, we are having a few technical issues today. So hopefully the podcast will work for you better than it has worked for us today. So it may be a slightly shorter episode as we don't want to try our luck too much with the podcasting NBN gods today. Van is obviously in Sydney. I am at home with Germanicus in Victoria, and we are doing this remotely. So it seems like every episode we try something new. (laughs) Yes, you know, we we keep the dream alive. Everybody, uh, secrets to a happy relationship. You know, like uh, having to work together to solve common problems. You know, like the internet crashing. No problem at all. Talking about trying to solve common problems and perhaps not getting it right, Morrison has now totally failed. So we now have lockdowns in Sydney, Brisbane, Townsville, Perth, Peel, Darwin, Alice Springs. Tasmania has once again cut itself off from most of the mainland. Uh, And we've seen five cases of COVID reported in South Australia as well, Van. Oh, I hadn't heard about South Australia, but I'm unsurprised. Yes, well, the virus is well and truly on the loose. And if only, Ben, if only people had spent the past 18 months going, we've got to improve quarantine, we've got to do something about getting the vaccination program right. Oh, actually, people did spend the past 18 months doing that. In fact, Scott Morrison was such a critic of hotel quarantine when it was Daniel Andrews that was running it. But now the virus is on the loose again. Uh, Scott Morrison, whose federal responsibility is, of course, for quarantine and vaccine, uh, is has been suspiciously quiet, Ben, have you noticed? Yeah, well, we have no uh, federal quarantine centres at all still to this very day, you know, and I'm reminded of that lovely clip from uh, the ABC of a doctor in a hospital in Melbourne uh, from around uh, from around May saying that this was a lull, unexpected lull in the pandemic. This was the real opportunity to get quarantine right, to get vaccinations right, that there'd never been any pandemic scenario where a lull would be available for, the, for people to get this stuff right. And yet here we are now, it's the start of July, and of course we know they haven't got it right. Not only do we have no quarantine facilities, Van, we're still doing hotel quarantine. 20% of the people who are in hotel quarantine are citizens of another country here on business visas, as it turns out. It's just been uncovered. Uh, And we're at the very bottom of the OECD when it comes to vaccine rollout. Greg Hunt was very proud of almost getting to 7% today. Oh, 7%. Now, here's a question, everybody. If you were sitting at exam and you got 7%, 
would you think that you had done particularly well in that exam? If somebody said to you, I only love you 7% as much as I did yesterday, <laughs> you'd, you'd probably question the relationship you're in, the integrity and stability of it. But no, no, here we are, 7%, last in the OECD, vaccine rollout is an absolute disaster, absolute disaster. Conflicting messages, no proper public campaign, uh, where the, the virus is on the loose again. In the libertarian state of New South Wales, as a Victorian, I'm really noticing the difference about what it means to have leadership take the virus very seriously and model serious behaviour, as opposed to what's going on in New South Wales, where Gladys Berejiklian has spent the past 18 months tipping a bucket on Daniel Andrews, giving statements like, oh, you know, I think they're doing it so wrong in Victoria. Scott Morrison pumping her up with, oh, yes, well... You know, New South Wales is the gold standard of how to deal with this, really. It's the gold standard. And it's like, it's not the gold standard. New South Wales had a lot of luck and it's a little bit warmer. But it is a particularly cold winter in New South Wales now. And the kind of conditions that fermented the spread of coronavirus in Victoria are back in New South Wales. And the the sort of laissez-faire, libertarian, very ideological attitude that the New South Wales Liberal National Government have taken towards the virus have essentially ensured that nobody's really taking it as seriously as they should. You know, and as Victorians, we are, you know, militant about wearing our masks and minimising contact and observing social distancing. You and I have this joke, I think we've mentioned it on the program before, that you use the word Thunderdome as a verb to describe potential (laughs) behaviour scenarios in the supermarket. Like I thought that dude was going to Thunderdome me, Uh, you know, the woman in the bread aisle was getting a bit Thunderdome-y. Like it's all – I I think everybody in Victoria knows, you know, how serious that trip to the supermarket is. New South Wales isn't like that. So there have been deliveries on the street where I'm staying at the moment. I'm in suburban Sydney. And people aren't wearing masks. <laughs> Why do you wear masks if you're driving a truck suburb to suburb delivering things? How crazy. Uh, I went to the supermarket. People aren't observing social distancing in the supermarket. QR codes are not mandatory everywhere, so you don't really check in in that many places in New South Wales. I certainly wasn't asked to check in when I went to the shops the other day. They've decided that businesses like JB Hi-Fi are an essential business and should stay open. And while I absolutely get that video games, music and computers, three of my favourite things, um, are absolutely essential to surviving lockdown, the shop doesn't need to be open and serving customers for those sales to be made. The internet is the appropriate place to buy those things. And it's, you know, and this attitude is just everywhere. You know, I keep describing it's like New South Wales has been infected by unserious coronavirus coronavirus leadership, you know, whereas in Victoria, like we knew the North Face jacket went on and it was serious and we stopped what we were doing and we listened to the press conferences. There was the press conference, I think it was only yesterday, but it might have been two days ago. It's all sort of, you know, it's lockdown and time means nothing. Mm, mm. But the absolutely bizarre press conference that Gladys Berejiklian did the other day, they got gate crashed by a guy who said he was the private, he was the private creator of the earth, and then there was this bizarre story about naked men being chased in the forest by deer and it was like this is this is not how you get people to observe the seriousness of a public health emergency what on earth is going on in new south wales that a heckler was able to get that close to a premier at an essential public health conference you know what i mean like it's yeah, just it's, a, it's it, all a it, bit loose it is a bit loose up there and and i think you know it's important <sighs> to remember that New South Wales has form now. Like I think it's fair to say New South Wales has form. 
you know, the Ruby Princess outbreak spread to the whole country. This outbreak has now spread to most of the country. We're seeing lockdowns. We're seeing border closures. We're seeing, and it's school holidays, right? So there's there's whole sectors of the economy where people would have been put on um, on a casual basis who've now been told basically to go home. Uh, there's no job keeper this time around. Uh, I see the Australian Union movement is out um, saying there should be job keepers, should be brought back, the casuals at the forefront of this. But, you know, the ideological position of Morrison and Gladys's refusal to live in a, a reality where the rest of us live um, means that there's just no nothing in place for that. So Morrison gave his press conference uh, last night, night before, uh, saying that they'd make uh, vaccines mandatory for people in aged care. Well, putting aside the fact that today the Queensland government asked for more vaccines and was flat denied more vaccines, so there are no more vaccines apparently, the, the reality is that that sector is now so casualised and so insecure that even the Morrison government, who has refused to acknowledge that insecure work is a problem, has said they'll put aside $11 million to fund people's time off to go and get vaccinated in the aged care sector, which, as Sally McManus has pointed out, is a drop in the ocean in terms of what's needed. Um, It's just ridiculous. These people have become so ideologically blind to reality, so disconnected from the ordinary everyday lives that people lead, that they can't see that insecure work is a scourge and we don't need JB Hi-Fi to be open in order to listen to music in a in a lockdown. We need government to act seriously. We need government to protect people's jobs, to help people through these times, and they're just not capable of it, Van. Oh, look, so I I came up to Sydney on Sunday and Monday I went to pick up a couple of things at the supermarket, fully prepared to be thunder-domed. And at the little suburban, you know, shopping centre that I went to, no check-ins, no QR codes. Fortunately, people had masks on, otherwise I would have left, but it was pretty confronting. But for me, the, the image of New South Wales lockdown was there was a cafe that was open and was serving, but you couldn't sit down in the cafe, but you could sit down in the mall. So you could buy the coffee, and that's what people were doing. They were buying coffees and then sitting down on the benches in the mall next to one another. And I was just like, yeah, this is this is not serious. This is not a serious response to a, a pandemic. The virus is out. It is being spread. We know it's the Delta variant. We know the Delta variant is just worse and nastier than the ones that came before. It spreads faster. It's harder to trace. A lot of the cases that they're finding are cases where people have tested negative and then the virus has just burrowed in and come out a few days later. Like this is a terrifying thing to live through. And yet the response in New South Wales is a bit, she'll be right. And it's like, no, she won't be right. That's not what's happening. And even today we've seen Gladys say, oh, we're on track to reopen on the 9th of July. You know, 22 cases today, 22 cases today, more cases emerging from this cluster in other states, uh, and yet Gladys seems uh, on track. Barilaro, who we're no fan of on this show, let me tell you, um, has came out and said, oh, we've lost control of the situation. Obviously, they want to reverse that impression, but it's hard to see how they're going to manage to do that, frankly. Like Australia has 7% 
Australia has 7% vaccination. And I know it's hard to say the words, isn't it? It's genuinely hard to say the words. Oh, it's just, you know, just outrageous. They're not in control of the situation. And, you know, the people I feel most sorry for are the people who just want to go to work, who just want to be able to pay their bills and just get on with things. You know, yes, we all feel sorry for the people who maybe aren't going to get to have that nice school holiday they wanted. But... There are now millions of Australians, more than 12 million Australians in some form of lockdown, and that is hundreds of thousands of jobs that are either gone or at risk, and Morrison has no plan, no plan. In fact, in New South Wales, Van, they're throwing workers under the bus. They've tried to prosecute the the limo driver who picked up the international air crew um, where this whole thing started, you know, there was this big hullabaloo that they were going to prosecute this guy and they'd engage special counsel and all the rest of it. Well, if we're going to start doing that to prosecuting a guy who wasn't apparently wasn't breaking the law because they hadn't actually made it the law at that point, then we need to be looking at what kind of prosecutions will, will happen to people like Gladys and Barilaro, who quite frankly could have acted sooner, should have acted sooner and refused to. Oh yeah, and I mean this is this is what's so outrageous as a Victorian. Like we suffered in Victoria and we've had the conversation before. I don't really think that people in other states understood what it was like in Victoria when we had those hard lockdowns that seemed to go indefinitely, those days where it was hundreds of cases and deaths and nobody knew what was gonna happen and it was hard. Like it was a really psychologically hard time. But we got through it, and I think Victorians amazingly got through it, and I think that has to do with, you know, a lot of the the reasons why people live in Victoria. Like it has a very community-based ethos and it is a very collectivist place. But we understood that we had to live like that to keep everybody else safe, that that was important, that we had to get the virus under control. We were the only place in the world that properly headed off like a second wave. Mm. And it and without and this is of course before vaccines and keeping those things under control was amazing, but the the problem that we have is that that attitude is is not shared by the government of New South Wales. I think it's shared by the people, mm. but in lieu of you know, behavioural modelling and you know giving everybody the the seriousness of what's going on. It, 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 and not respecting what we learnt through lockdown, that you have to go hard and fast as soon as you can, you know, that you have to make those really tough decisions uh, about businesses opening or closing or staying open or anything else because they are actually what allow you to bounce back sooner rather than later. You've got to put measures in place to support working people whose lives are disrupted to make sure that there are all of these mechanisms in place so you're not entrenching and furthering the, the conditions that led to the contagion. And it's like none of that meant anything for Gladys Berger Clinton. That no, not to, they not weren't even Gladys. paying attention, you know, that it just wasn't important, that the lessons we learned were meaningless. But and I'm I just think, like, what yeah, I think I think, Van, it's important that we remember that, you know, I think to for our listeners and for a lot of people in the community, those lessons, those lessons have been learned. You know, I've been really uh, inspired by people coming together 
right across the country and in support of one another. Yeah, there's a bit of interstate rivalry stuff that that's flared off uh, online. Uh, probably not helped by state of origin as well. Um, and and the kind oh, and of the Gladys announced was the most important thing. But literally yeah. the day that the lockdown happened, everybody's freaking out. You know, the state's in total chaos. You and I had to part. We had this. It was like a scene from a movie when you and I had been in Wagga and I was coming to Sydney to be with my mother and you were going back to Victoria because you had to work. And we literally had the conversation at the train station where we don't know when we'll see one another again because of the circumstances of this lockdown. Like these are the things that ordinary people go through. Like these are the challenges. And we hear story after story about people with, you know, loved ones who are dying interstate and what does lockdown mean and how can we be safe for the rest of it. Where I am at the moment in suburban Sydney, you know, for this lockdown, the community don't see themselves as Labor voters or Liberal voters. They see themselves as neighbours, you know, and people here are trying to look after one another. But if your government isn't showing you seriousness and leadership and being clear and having unambiguous messages about what protecting people looks like, it's actually really hard to get right. And I think one of the points that I was trying to get to there is exactly that point, is that we are... You know, we are together. We are a community of people uh, in Australia and we do, you know, it can be hard to see how do we make change happen, but we have made change happen again and again and again in this country. You know, we've stood up for superannuation and we saved superannuation. We stood up for Medicare and we've saved Medicare. You know, we've stood together through the pandemic as working people and we did get JobKeeper. And I think that's really important. And, you know, this show is obviously sponsored by Australian Unions and you know, being part of the proudly union, sponsored by Australian absolutely, proudly. We're, proud, we're proud to have them as a sponsor, and I think it's really important that people remember that that at this time, you know, there is community available for you, um, for all of us, and that you know the union the union is always part of our community. So you know, I'd encourage people to to jump online australianunions.org.au slash wow. That's w o w. That's the that's the customized link where you can join your union. And join that community, be part of that change, make sure that our leaders, whether they're in Canberra or in Sussex Street or Macquarie Street or wherever it is in New South Wales that Gladys <laughs> might be. She's um, not going to be in Sussex Street, Ben, I can tell you that now. <laughs> <laughs> I always get confused, you see. It's such a natural such a natural thing for Labor to be in power there. Um, it's been too oh, long. Once upon a time, it really has been too long. And I've got to say, you, re- you do notice the difference. You really notice the difference. Like I still can't get over the guy who crashed the press conference. And well, the I think that was – and, and I was just the- like – I think it was the assistant commissioner. I don't think it was the premier. The premier might have been there, but I think he crashed it while the assistant police commissioner was speaking, yeah. But even so, it's like, how is this happening? What are you doing? Like, where is the leadership? You know, and, and this is more broadly part of the point. I mean, you and I have spoken about the fact that from the outset, the conservative movement in the West, because it hasn't just happened in Australia, it was pioneered in America, it was picked up in the UK, obviously Bolsonaro ran with it in Brazil, like mm. this whole idea that coronavirus was a, a political wedge issue. So the right made a decision that, you know, their drug of choice was hydroxychloroquine, um, you know. The, the That's disappeared, isn't it? 
It really has, hasn't it? Um, vaccinations were suspect and iffy, and I'm just asking questions about vaccine and this, you know, these conspiracy theories about AstraZeneca, which, by the way, is overwhelmingly safe, overwhelmingly safe. There are a few reactions, but they are infinitesimal, especially compared to the number of people who die if they catch coronavirus. So you are much better off with the, you know, on a risk matrix, everyone, you are less likely to die of anything getting the AstraZeneca vaccine as a reaction to it than you are, uh, it's like six in a million chances of having an adverse reaction to it as opposed to coronavirus where 20,000 people in a million Will this die is part if of they the, catch it. But Van, this is part of the lack of leadership, isn't it? Because we've we've heard all sorts of things about the AstraZeneca, and you know, you and I are both fully vaccinated, and and you know, both of our parents are vaccinated, and that's you know, we wouldn't have that any other way. Obviously, I think I think though, people. Um, do need to listen at this point to, to medical expertise. Um, and by that, I don't just mean, you know, the GP in your suburban strip mall. Um, do look at what's happening with the Royal College of General Practitioners. Do look at what the Australian Medical Association is saying because we've seen Morrison come out and sort of say, oh, it's open slather now for AstraZeneca. And that's after three or four different and conflicting pieces of advice. We've seen the Queensland um, chief medical officer come out today and say she doesn't want people under 40 having it. Um, you know, I think it is important that people do take into account their own health circumstances. Well, yeah, um, but exactly. at the same time, at the same time, I do think, you know, none of us are medical professionals and or experts. And don't kid yourself. Don't think, oh, well, you know, I know myself better than, than modern science knows me and I'll make the decision myself without reference to that. At the end of the day, you will have to make a decision. My view is always that vaccinations, you're better off vaccinated than not vaccinated. Uh, and as Van says, if you looked at it and measured it on a risk matrix like most things are these days, it'd be no, there's a no-brainer. There's a no-brainer there, and that is get vaccinated when you can. But do take into account your own circumstances. And, you know, we could use a bit more clear, concise leadership and communication from the federal government uh, on on these issues. Personally, I find myself now very much reliant on the Victorian government advice, and that's the advice that I'll be following because, frankly, they seem prepared to take the steps. They seem prepared to use a bit of a risk minimisation, mitigation type approach and trying to keep people safe. And at the same time, you know, putting the money in to help those who are disadvantaged by these things. Whereas Morrison and Gladys, it's uh, it's all a bit let rip, isn't it? It really is. It's just so loose. That's the word I keep coming back to. Like the leadership is loose, the circumstances loose, the responses are loose, and it's like we're in the middle of something really terrifying and difficult, and we shouldn't be where we are. Like Australia had that amazing window as you said, like we had a lull, we had a space to to build up the ramparts and protect ourselves from the virus. You know, I, I think it, I can't remember who it was, it might have been Paul Sivrid on Twitter the other day, was like, we're a country with the world's biggest moat. We have an actual moat and, <laughs> and it shouldn't be like this. We shouldn't be last in the world when it comes to vaccination. We shouldn't have such a cack-handed like vaccine program messaging. I mean, the, the fact the government has apparently spent $40 million on vaccine 
education in a publicity wow. campaign. And I'm like, who did you get to do it? The milkshake people. Like, this is ridiculous. That is ridiculous. Like, who is communicating? And especially when we've mentioned it before, that amazing campaign they're running in France and those ads. And if you haven't seen them, have a look. Have a look for, like, French vaccination campaign about, you know, France opening back up again. The more people get injected, the more things open. Yeah. And we had the space to get this right, to plan a rollout, to establish proper quarantine facilities. And this is a big thing. Like I think it was Christina Keneally was saying online the other day that we take we take horse diseases more seriously. Like if you yeah. are a horse and you want to gain injury to Australia, you have to observe really strict quarantine. Like you're held there for weeks, you're in a proper facility. But we do that with animals, but we don't do that with people. No, it's, like, it's outrageous. The holes in the hotel quarantine system. And mm. I, I saw the press conference with Anastasia Palaszczuk up in Queensland, who was in, actually enraged, saying again and again, we have said to the federal government, we need this quarantine facility, we need these mechanisms in our community, this is how we keep ourselves safe. And the federal government, Morrison et all, have done nothing. They've praised Gladys Berejiklian's gold standard. But the, they had two jobs. One was quarantine. One was vaccination, and Morrison has not been able to do either. I have to say, Van, it's been interesting to see on just about every social media channel that Morrison failure seems to be trending almost every day. And, and there's another issue that I want to move on to because um, I can tell, you know, we could talk about COVID for hours here. And we and overall, over the course of <laughs> the life of the week on Wednesday, we have and we probably will have to keep talking about it. But there are other Morrison failures that we need to discuss as well. Um, and, of course, I'm talking now about the absolute boondoggle, the absolute rot that is this car parking scheme. This 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 $330 million handed out to coalition seats the day before he calls an election to build car parks at Commuter railway car stations. Parks. Yeah. That haven't most of which haven't even been built. And some um, of which couldn't be built because apparently the logistics made it impossible for them to be built. Just it's just the total cost of this program is about six hundred and sixty million. It makes the sports rorts, you know, sports rorts by comparison was about a hundred million. Um this the the office the, the National Auditor's Office, which looks at programs like this, has totally slammed it. The department wasn't involved. It was all seemingly done and generated out of Morrison's office. Yeah, you had the spreadsheets on the old spreadsheets. Yeah, you had people. When I say people, I mean Liberal candidates announcing this stuff on the campaign trail um, and when being asked, oh, is this a campaign promise, saying, no, no, it's in the budget, it's in the budget. Like the whole thing just smacks of politicking and corruption. And pork um, barrelling. I mean, this is this is what pork barrelling is. You know, pork barrelling is pumping money into boondoggles basically, like, you know, empty promises, unnecessary infrastructure, and it's all about – it's all about being able to target certain demographics in seats that they want to either retain or to win. And that's what they did with sports rorts and it's what they're doing with commuter car parks. But it's corrupt, isn't it, Van? I mean, you know, for a long time I think, you know, we've we've accepted that there's a bit of pork barrelling in politics, right? You know, that the local sports ground gets – gets an extra light, you know, closer to election time than maybe it would have got if there wasn't an election on, you know. But this is now hundreds of millions of dollars. This is targeted, targeted use of Commonwealth money, of money that is common to us all, 
to target specific communities of people. As you say, it gets right down to a level of of targeting that you know most most of us would struggle to get our heads around how you'd even come up with those targets. But fundamentally, it, it is a form of corruption, isn't it? Yeah, well, of course, it's it's as, it's as crooked as a bent stick. It's yeah, what it is. It's appalling, and we and shouldn't. It's not take how it. taxpayer money is supposed to be allocated, and it's no. hardly based on need. Like it's literally based on reward, like rewarding the boroughs that back in the Tories. Like that's that's it. You know, and well, it, uh, for those of you who don't have that, that the kinds of political experiences that you and I have had, like this is the this is the kind of stuff that they do. They sit down there, they crunch data around who is susceptible to voting, what percentage of people are potentially soft voters one way or the other, what they might want, what their frustrations are, how they can be targeted. And commuter car parks is a great issue because it's always frustrating. You know, like if you're commuting, commuting is frustrating. You know, you're up against the infrastructure Mm. every day. You know, issues to do with cars and, and, you know, poor urban design, they're everywhere because, you know, our communities are organic. We didn't have central planning and sat down saying how we're going to build all of our cities and suburbs and infrastructure and train stations into the next few centuries. Like that's not a conversation that happened. You know, things are built on the fly, bung together, plans fail, things change, the rest of it. So it's a great issue for targeting a certain segment of the population and they're willing to pour money into it just like they did with sports rorts. I mean, my favourite um, election analyst who's actually a Republican or a former Republican in the USA is a guy called Rick Wilson and I have mm. learned more about politics from reading his books and following him on Twitter and he's at the Rick Wilson on Twitter and he's a very good follower. But he's like, elections are not won by big blocks of votes. They're won by an accumulation of things slices and if you can convince 15 people here 30 people here 50 people here that's how you win you know and we can say that's why the liberal party are doing this the point is they're supposed to do this with promises not with actual cash money because it's not really up to them to fund (laughs) their election campaign with revenue collected from taxpayers they're supposed to put their promises before the electorate and then the electorate can decide you know, where they think money should be best invested. I think you could ask 12 million Australians today, the 12 million who are in lockdown, would you rather money be spent on a commuter car park or a vac- like universal vaccines that everybody has confidence in and a quarantine system? And I think overwhelmingly the votes would probably be with quarantine and vaccine at this point. Oh, absolutely. And I think the I think one of the points you make there is that this is not based on need, right? So none of the projects, none of the projects are in, say, the growth areas of Western Melbourne, which, you know, boggles the mind. These are – this isn't just – this isn't, to my mind, just pork barrelling. This is literally using our money to buy our votes, um, and it's shameful. Like, it's and they've using come our out today, money to buy other people's votes because you and I live yeah. in Western in Victoria, yeah, yeah, Western the, the suburbs. Yeah, you know, and, and we see this, and we see this lack of infrastructure, all of which has to be picked up by the state government because the feds, uh, the feds don't make the electoral calculations around people who live where we live. Don't be ridiculous. No, but this is the thing. Then the minister comes out and defends it. You know, the, the, these 
it is it is a sad state of Australian politics. And this is this is the point that I keep trying to come back to, is that we shouldn't accept it, right? We shouldn't accept it. We don't have to accept it. We can say, no, that's not good enough, you know, and it's not, oh, well, they're all the same and they all do it. Well, everybody makes mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. And it's about how people respond to that. This is clearly not a mistake. The Liberal, the Liberal government under Morrison hasn't made a mistake with $660 million because they've come out and defended it, that nobody's resigned over it. Nobody's there are spreadsheets for crying out loud. Exactly like- right. Exactly right. So it needs, if you want accountable politicians, you've got to hold them to account. And if you vote for somebody who's in a party that you know is acting corruptly, then I'm sorry, my friends, I'm sorry, but you're getting the politician and you're getting the political culture that you vote for. Oh, it's so bad. And it's just, you know, this massive hoo-ha about sports frauds, which were disgusting and disgraceful. And they were anti-democratic and they were pork-barreling and they were crooked. And there was such an absolute outcry about them that Bridget McKenzie was made to step down from her ministerial position. She had overseen it. It was her responsibility. Well, Bridget McKenzie is, of course, now back in the cabinet because nobody gets punished for anything. This is the new political culture on the right. Yeah. And you think, I keep thinking about Sam Dastiari and he's like, you know, improperly declared a couple of hundred bucks from a Chinese yeah. businessman. And that was it. Like, Dastiari had to go and there was this big scandal and he was Shanghai Sam and the rest of it. Like, so if you're, if you're Labor and you do what Sam did, you're gone. If you're a liberal, well, you just spend a couple of months on the back bench and then you can be back in cabinet, no problem. Well, when you're well, dealing Bridget with gets restored to the ministry, and Bridget gets restored to the ministry, unbelievable! Like <laughs> the level of incompetence and dishonesty shown by Bridget McKenzie was it was a national scandal. But now she's back, and of course, what really concerns me is that this. Um, pork barrelling around commuter car parks. The commuter car parks. Corruption, scandal. man. Corruption. Let's not call it pork barrelling. That's got such a such a kind of you know neighbourly southern tinge to it. Pork barrelling. It's you, I think the thing is that you love pork and you love barrels, and so it doesn't <laughs> sound so bad to you. But yeah, this crooked behaviour. And I, I'm, you know, I'm genuinely concerned. It's not going to receive the amount of personalised attention because the minister for for commuter car parks isn't a woman. You know, this yeah. was done in Morrison's yeah. office. Yeah. And, like, you know, we saw the rapid action against Susan Lay, who was using her travel allowance to, you know, be a real estate speculator and buy properties and, you know, be fancy. She was made to resign. She was pushed off her perch for a while. Mm. But it's the women who take the fall and yet I wonder that the scandal is diminished by the fact that it's Morrison himself who was in charge of it. I, I would love to be proved wrong. I would love somebody to tell me that that's not going to happen. But it's this new attitude on the right, you know, like this the Trump model of just be shameless. Like I'm so old, Ben. I remember when a minister was forced to step down over improperly declaring a Paddington bear toy yeah. that he brought back from England. That it, you know, and this toy was worth like forty bucks and wasn't declared. And Mick Young, and he like mm. very prominent, um, yeah. you know, a champion of the unemployed, mm. you know, like mm. social activist type of MP. And it was a massive, massive scandal. 
And it's like, yeah, 330 million on commuter car parks, no problem. Oh, and the Prime Minister himself, the Prime Minister himself directing Commonwealth resources to help him track down his family ancestry on a taxpayer funded trip. Uh, that he then diverted in, into a tour around Cornwall. I mean, that in itself should be enough to say, like that in itself is an inappropriate use of of uh, resources, you know. But it, it just it snowballs. These people, you know, I think Christopher Pine said it um, somewhere uh, that, you know, the, the reason why the Liberals don't like to be in opposition is that they see themselves as the natural managerial class and and it really comes through in these moments i think where oh, you see managerial class they think they're aristocrats yeah you know this is the behavior of aristocrats well you, you saw know, that they're... photo you saw that photo of uh, hockey and corman you know a sunday a sunday trip around paris drinking beers and having a good time and taking photos and posting them online you know hockey has pulled every lever he can to get himself around the world during a pandemic uh, we funded matthias corman to become the, the it's the Secretary General, I think it is, of the OECD, a socialist-style title that must grate on him every day. You know, these two, these two men who are living off the public purse, having a grand old time, as tens of thousands of Australians are trapped and unable to come home, and 12 million Australians are in lockdown. It's just outrageous. Oh, it is genuinely sickening. It's genuinely sickening. And you can see it infects all the decisions they make. Like, it's all right for me, so it doesn't matter what it's like for you. Yeah. And, like, I, obviously my opposition to the Liberal Party and the National Party is ideological. Like, I'm a collectivist. I, I yeah. believe in things like sharing. I think unity makes us strong. I, you know, I believe everybody is in, inherently equal, and that's, you know, that's that's my ideological worldview. They're the values I'll fight for. But I think what coronavirus has really provoked in me is that my opposition to them, I've, in a way it sort of feels they've corrupted my opposition to them, which for me is about the loftiness and, and nobility of these ideas and these values. But just on a practical level, mm. they are crap. Like well, could- the vaccine rollout is terrible. You know, the way they allocate funding is terrible. There is literally no commitment to doing the most basic things to keep people safe. And yet it's just about personal indulgence. It's not about values. It's not, you know, it's not about the the contest between socialist collectivists and individualist capitalists anymore. It's about a bunch of aspirant princes who are more than, and I use princes as a gendered term quite deliberately, who are just happy sucking up all the resources they can and dodging themselves and don't really care about what happens to anybody else. You know, Stuart Robert, Stuart Robert, who's one of the most disgraceful ministers in the government, who's been caught out publicly lying um, Mm. to deflect attention to himself. He was, of course, one of the um, ministers behind robo-debt and literally has the suicide of people who are unfairly targeted, should be on his conscience, obviously isn't. Um, Mm. He was the one who spent thousands, tens of thousands of dollars on an internet connection um, paid for by taxpayers, of course, because as if you paid yourself while taking himself off to Jerusalem to do Holy City tours because he's so pious and whatever. There were things with Rolexes. Like he's absolutely saturated in incompetence, mismanagement, you know, and cap-handedness. 
and he was attacking <laughs> Anastasia Palaszczuk today, saying that she was playing the blame game around hotel quarantine. Oh, yeah, you're just playing the blame game. Anyone can play the blame game. And I think the accusation was that one-trick ponies just throw grenades. And I was just like, this is the best you can do. You're a minister of the crown. We're in the middle of a massive public health emergency. 12 million people are trapped at home. And you just you don't want to be identified in the blame game? Well, I think the thing here, Van, is as we've said before, you know, I've discussed this, you know, they, they really are the failed second and third sons. Um, you know, they're, they're the uncle who runs a failing secondhand car business, you know, that's the, that's the crew that really is the Morrison government. Um, he's got there on smoke and mirrors, um, a pack of lies, total incompetence, um, you know, failure up and down, failure up and down the place um, and I and I just hope they get punished for it we're gonna to have to move on because uh, we're, we're running short on time now um, but I think I think that issue is going to keep coming back and back because there are just so many more examples now uh, tomorrow uh, the cuts to Medicare kick in tomorrow uh, we've seen the AMA say that they're concerned about the incompetence of the government to roll out the changes. Uh, given their rollout of the vaccine, it's not hard to see why the AMA would have that concern. Uh, I can tell you from personal experience, I had to see a doctor today and um, I was I was charged more than I was uh, the last time I saw a doctor, which wasn't that long ago. I'm not that old. Um, and so these things are already starting to, uh, to bite. You know, Van, we I bring this up because I know we've talked about Medicare before, and there is, of course, the petition to save Medicare. I know many of our listeners have signed that. Go to AustralianUnions.org.au/slash/Medicare to sign that. Um, the, but of course, we've also seen the intergenerational report come out uh, this week, uh, which says Australians will live longer. Uh, there will be fewer working age Australians. Our population will shrink. It's the first time a report has said that. Uh, And, of course, that means more call on things like Medicare, on health services. Uh, And Frydenberg's general response to this seems to be, we'll have to improve, in inverted commas, productivity, which, frankly, given their cuts to training, cuts to education, cuts to infrastructure, you know. Oh, yeah, their intergenerational report, and Tony Plibersek made this point, has has factored in declining education funding. They're literally planning to spend less on education at the same time they're demanding that we increase our productivity, unquote. And also in the intergenerational report, they're foreshadowing progressive reductions in taxation. You know, this is their this is their whole thing. You know, like you know, two two statements that define their whole economic plan, which is cut taxes, drive down wages. That's it. That's that's all they believe, and that's written into the intergenerational report. Oh yeah, well obviously income tax will keep going down, and also with the declining taxation base, we'll decline our investment um, in things like education. It's it's outrageous. Like it's a revealing document for the kind of future that they want for Australia, which is unequal, unfair, with fewer opportunities, and the the great um, deprivation of opportunity, which is of course the education system. Well, I, I just cannot 
cannot believe um, that they have the gall to say that they have increased funding um, to record levels when Commonwealth funding as a proportion of what people pay in tax has declined. Commonwealth funding for healthcare uh, and for education, I believe, as a proportion of what they collect in tax has declined. And they're still banking massive income tax cuts for people at the highest levels of income in this country. For, for them to have this report, I mean, these intergenerational reports really are an opportunity to examine the direction of the country and as a government, think about the settings, think about which way the sales are set and make changes so that we don't end up in the horrendous situation where people are retiring into poverty or people having to work till the age of 80 or, God forbid, we end up with an American-style healthcare system where you know the number one cause of bankruptcy in America is health costs. And there was a time, and people forget, there was a time here in Australia before Bob Hawke, before Medicare, where it was one of the leading, if not the leading cause of bankruptcy in any given year, was health costs. We don't want to go back to those dark days. We do not. We don't. And it's just, you know, our princes do not care because it doesn't affect them because they earn enough money to pay for everything privately. It's You know, anybody who who talks about user pays, you can almost guess how much they earn in a year and it's certainly nothing south of 200000 Oh, we need a user pay system. I mean, you know, that just delivers efficiency and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and you start you start working out what postcode they must live in, and you know well, even what kind of wine they drink. Those you you can of, do it almost down to the dollar. Those kind of those kind of statements, right? Those sort of user pay statements. You know, you think about the efficiency that the the changes to aged care have ended up delivering. You know, we we, we had to make it more about user choice and user control, and and the, so the user will have to make a contribution. And what's happened? The system is fundamentally broken. We've had royal commissions we've, that have suggested a renationalisation. We have massive amounts of insecure work. We have abuse. We have huge profiteering. You know, these these are anybody who says a user pay system is the best system for any kind of sector is either. It should be told to prove their belief by living in an aged care home, well, not probably, a fancy one. <laughs> that, that should be the trade off. Probably, probably looking for an angle to make a buck, Van, I reckon. I, I just I just reckon the moment someone goes, oh, well, we should have a user pay system, I'm like, right, prove that you believe that by committing to spending your declining years or months, given how the sector is going, in one of those privatised aged care homes. And let any- me tell you, one week and you will be an absolute democratic socialist, let me tell you. <laughs> and any and any benefit they got from, say, education or health or whatever along the way, maybe they could pay that back as well. All right. Well, a Tory tax. A Tory if you're tax. a Tory, you have to pay back every single dollar that the state and the and you know the collective of taxpayers spend on your education or your healthcare or your roads or you know your environment or anything, anything. 
a yeah. Tory tax. The ones, Prove the ones, to me how much you believe in this stuff. <laughs> the ones like the ones who are I don't watch the ABC, but I'm forced to pay for it. It's like, yeah, you know. And there's a lot of things about your existence that I'm pretty sure I'm yeah. cross subsidising. And I don't support free trade deal, like unilateral free trade deals with authoritarian regimes. And yet, somehow, as a citizen of this country, I'm supposed to put up with the implications of that because of your export business so yeah yeah, i guess it swings and roundabouts buddy that's right we all live in a community let's talk about some good news let's round out the show today because it's obviously a whole mood i'm really in a foul mood a huge apology to everyone but it's just like basically four scott morrison stories what a downer so i have some happy news yeah please please and it's it's actually really interesting it starts off kind of upsetting um, and it has to do with slash and burn agriculture. So yeah. slash and burn agriculture is one of the big drivers of rainforest destruction around the world. And slash and burn agriculture is basically when impoverished farmers in in uh, rain like around rainforest communities, obviously South America, Africa, Southeast Asia, um, practice a form of agriculture where they literally slash, cut down trees, yeah. and burn um, and burn, burn them. Yeah. And on what's left behind, they plant agri- like agricultural crops, and that crop lasts for maybe one season. Very unusual you get a second season. And so what you do the next year is you move on, and then you slash and burn another five acres, and then you slash and burn another five acres. And you can imagine what this is doing to the planet. Like it's mm. disgraceful. So um, and driven by poverty and dr- driven by need to eat, and it is basically subsistence farming. Yeah. And it's having a devastating impact on the environment in places like Honduras and, of course, making the effects of climate change worse um, because if you do that to land, you're not protected from floods, you're not oh. protected from high winds and all of those things. So there's this rather amazing um, British surveyor whose name is Dr Mike Hands who's been based in Honduras for a long time and he was watching this happen going, this is terrible. And, like, let's put this into perspective. And between 250 million and 300 million farmers are doing this a year, a year. And, you know, those people have to eat. So... The good Dr. Hans decided that he would, that there had to be a better way, like there had to be a better, more sustainable form of agriculture. And beginning in the 1980s, he started developing, uh, researching and developing an idea of a form of agriculture, which is called Inga Alley agriculture or agroforestry, if you like. Mm. And the Ingas are a type of plant. There are 300 different species of the Inga plant, and they're technically a legume. Um, so they're related to beans in some way. And inga plants grow incredibly quickly, like they grow several feet in a year. Uh-huh. And they uh-huh. also have a root system that flourishes in quite denuded soil and they pump it full of nitrogen. Uh-huh. And what they found out over the course of studying slash and burn forms of agriculture is the reason why you don't get a crop the next year is because essentially you burn out all the phosphorus from the earth and nothing can grow. Uh-huh. But what Inga do is they basically rehabilitate and regenerate the soil for you. And they've developed this kind of um, agriculture working on these projects in Honduras and they ran a control, you know, of of productivity um, of those who were using this sort of Inga technique and those who were slash and burning. And by the time that the experiment was finished, all of the slash and burners signed up to Inga because the results were so amazing. What they do is they plant Inga trees in like long columns, so sort of alleyways. So this is yep. why it's like alleyway agriculture. 
the ingot grow really quickly, put their roots into the soil, start rehabilitating the soil, and then they reach a certain height and then you um, crop them. You use the wood. You can use the wood for firewood or for construction or whatever, but yeah. you strip the wood that you've cut of its leaves and you create a compost layer of the leaves and the leaves decompose and they protect the soil so the soil is constantly regenerating. And the the outcomes of this particular technique have just been amazing. It means families can stay put. They don't have to move five acres over every year. Um, it means that they, because they can have these productive agricultural crops, they're also growing cash crops on those as well, like export yep. crops, which means that they're economically more sustainable as well. But also it means that those families can become invested in rainforest protection because they're living alongside the rainforest, not fighting it. So this has had a massive, massive impact um, in Honduras and is, you know, this incredible form of farming keeps crops safer from floods. It mitigates the effects of climate change on the crops that they grow. And it's just, it's really simple. And it's also farming without pesticides and without, you know, um, those in commercial kinds mm-hmm. of seeds that don't fertilise and things like that. And um, and it's he's amazing, this guy. The Guardian named him one of the 50 people who are changing the world, saw a problem, decided to come up with solutions, stuck with it, and, yeah, it will it, essentially, yeah, it's, it's something incredible. Like it's like for every, um, it's like for every thousand households that do this kind of agriculture, it's like taking a million cars off the road in terms of what it means. Wow. Um, in reducing impact. carbon emissions. So thank you for letting me rave about that. I'm no, sorry for that. I think that's a fantastic piece of news because, you know, it comes back to the key theme. You know, the, the week on Wednesday we talk about a lot of really deep issues. We talk a lot about, about politics. We talk a lot about economics. We talk a lot about the future and the challenges and tribulations that we, that we face even now. And, you know, that can be – sometimes that can seem a bit grim and I think the good news story every, every week is so important because it reminds us that actually people make decisions and people can solve problems and coming together in communities like they've done in the, like they've done in Honduras um, and backing in ideas and backing in each other and realizing you know as well that it's not the subsistence Honduran farmers it's not the 250 to 300 million people who are living in poverty, you know, that's more than 10 times the Australian population who are living in poverty trying to survive, just survive, who are the problem. They're actually the community that is the solution. Um, And that's, again, you know, why I'm so proud, and I know you are, Van, to be uh, partnered with Australian unions because that's the kind of community, that's the kind of togetherness that gets things done and and we demonstrate that whether it's farming in Honduras or winning pay rises at General Mills or whatever it might be and so you know we're coming up to the end of the show and I just want to again encourage people to go to australianunions.org.au slash wow join your union get involved because you know there's lots of things we can do we all want to make change we all want to see change happen and like Van has just told us you know it's by seeing a problem, getting involved. You don't have to have the genius idea, um, but every single one of those Honduran farmers who signed on is actually helping solve the problem and in the process making their own lives better as well, right? Yeah, making their own lives better. And, yeah, and then that exports, you know, like 
you make a contribution, you share it, you, you bring something to fruition, you do what you can. You know, there's an old Methodist saying about do all the good that you can, anywhere that you can, any time that you can, do the best that you can for everyone that you can. Like live your life like that. It's not up to you to come up with all of the solutions, but it's up to all of us to be part of those solutions if we want to be good people as opposed to, say, cigar-sucking wannabe aristocrats who are having a fab time in Paris and may they both end up in a large bin. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that's a really great way to end the show this week because we do need you to share this episode. We need you to share this episode, talk about the issues, come back to us with your comments, do let us know. We are on Twitter, Facebook. Uh, we are on, I think, uh, LinkedIn. You'll see copies of the show. Uh, you can download us through Apple, through Spotify, uh Basically, wherever you get your podcasts, you will find The Week on Wednesday. You have made this one of the best shows, one of the best rated politics podcasts in Australia. And for that, we're very grateful. But we got 100,000 download this week, 100,000. It's, 100, really, it's really phenomenal, really phenomenal. So um, do be part of the change. Do join your union. Do share this podcast. Do download and talk about the issues. And do let us know what you think is important and give us some topics to talk about. Van, I miss you deeply. I miss you dearly. The dog is in my lap. He misses you as well. Do take care up there, darling, and I love you. Well, at least you know I won't be roaming the streets. I love you madly, and I can't wait to see you again. Bye. Bye. Bye, Jim.